From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. Got three of the four co-hosts here. Some combination of us are here every week to do this. Shane Jensen's here on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Eric Bradlow out on the main line somewhere. And this is Cade Massey also on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Audie Weiner is out and about doing Audie Weiner things. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every week. Glad y'all are here. We're going to do kind of our typical show. We've got COVID in the first quarter, a couple of open topic segments, and then we'll close with an interview in Q4. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, late Tuesday afternoon, kind of our usual slot. Got a few things bouncing around. Going to be good to see y'all, A. And B, curious, I think COVID is, you know, it's not getting any less interesting, really, unfortunately. And I'm curious what in the world of COVID has caught your eye. I, I can go first if you want. I mean, I think where we're heading towards is what I would call, what's caught my eye is what I'll call a multi pronged attack, which means there's no doubt vaccines are highly effective. And just to be clear, even though people are saying, you know, I've gotten a booster shot, which is true, and many people, I'm in fact, uh, Pfizer literally just applied today to give everyone 18 plus a, blue, a booster. They applied to the FDA to get it approved that everyone 18 plus will get a booster. I want to I come back to that, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. My point was Pfizer also now has a pill. It's not a vaccine, but it's a pill that they claim is 89% effective, meaning if you've already got some symptoms, possibly you've even tested positive, start taking this pill three times a day for five days. Well, that's 89% effective at preventing severe hospitalization. So my view is what, what I think we're going to end up having is we're going to have a vaccine. And by the way, I have every belief, just my own opinion, that I might be getting booster shots every year for the next 40 years of my life. Wow. I have every belief that I will have pills in my home and that when uh, I start feeling bad or I get a positive test, I'm going to start popping some pills. And I have no reason to believe it won't be, and possibly even in certain situations, I might be wearing masks for the rest of my life to prevent spreading of diseases. And my view, it'll, be, it'll probably be some combination of those three things that will allow us to live what I will call relatively normal lives. So that's what's caught my eye. I don't think there's going to be one solution. I think it's going to be some combination of therapeutics, some combination of vaccine and some combination of what I would call change of behavior, mask wearing, social distancing, et cetera. Eric, one question on that, um, on that plan, because we've talked about it becoming endemic like the flu. Would it have seasonality? Would, would COVID ever settle into seasonality in the way that flu does? I mean, what even drives the seasonality? My sense is that it's weather related and it goes to the Southern hemisphere when the Southern hemisphere is in winter and it comes up here and it kind of moves around the globe in that way, but we don't have the same dynamics with COVID, right? It wouldn't be quite as. Yeah. And and I mean, if they had to pill for the flu, the second you felt any symptoms, you just start popping this pill three times a day, five days a week. I I mean, I guess 
you know, I, I mean, if the rest of life, I, I mean, you know, anytime you feel anything resembling a cold, <laughs> you're going to just start popping this. No, I mean, what I'm going to do, I'm, Shane, I'm, I'm sure, I also want, I'm sure way, Pfizer's, Shane, I, Pfizer's business model would be very well served by everybody. No, but what I also want, Shane, is pill three times no, a day. But I also want, I also want a box of rapid tests in my home. And so if I start feeling yeah, bad, the, the first thing, thing I'm going to do is I'm going to spit in some tube and it's going to turn red or blue or whatever it's going to be. And I don't have to send it to some no, lab and, and get and, it back six days later. I and, want that, too. And that makes sense. It's just that we started you started this conversation being that, like, the second you feel any kind of symptom, regardless, I mean, because, you know, we're talking about, you know, we started this without it being even after you've tested positive for COVID that you know somehow they're recommending yeah. you they're, they're recommending you start taking popping this pill the second you feel anything off in your life i guess Shane, regardless Shane, of whether you've been tested positive for covid or not Shane, shane's just anti-big pharma he's got to get that in here the anti-big pharma message well, hey shane, I mean, shane hold on. no we just add a piece to eric's plan just yeah. add the testing piece and it rounds it out yeah. real nice so eric you got a four a fourth component in there and it's testing. I think it's exactly right. I already I think the, think question, the question, yeah, the question to me that Shane's point makes is, and it's a thing I don't know, is that suppose I even leave out that fourth step, whether I'm positive or not, and I just start popping pills. I have no idea. Let's imagine the side effects are mild, but I have no idea, like, if I take these pills when I don't need it, but then when I really need it, are they less <laughs> efficacious? So yeah. if they weren't, if the side effects were minimal and the efficaciousness of them didn't decline as you know this is the 80th time i'm popping pills i have to say to myself i'm thinking about loss functions i'm going to start popping pills i'm yeah. not even going to wait for a test i'll just start popping them and you know yeah, well i mean at, at that point it just becomes vitamin p and you pop right? it every day along yes. with vitamin c and vitamin d right yes well but is it isn't it the case i mean if you had to bet whether it would lose lose efficacy over time, you'd probably yes, I bet that yes, yes, so so back back to the back to the testing regimen. So let's go to the. You talked about Pfizer um, submitting a booster for everyone over eighteen. So I didn't. I guess I didn't realize that that hadn't been approved. I thought that was more of a policy like restriction. I didn't know that it was an FDA approval question. Yeah, I, I, I don't really. I, I guess with Kate, I, I I also thought that the reason that they where it all restricting the booster was based on just kind of like, again, sort of controlling rollout, you know, getting rollout. No, to, but it, there's, but are there, there have been safety concerns. No, that they somehow the issue, have to overcome? no, it's, it's literally a technical issue, which is let's remember the way it started. First, the vaccine was launched under an EUA, emergency youth authorization. And then actually, as we saw, some people were like, I'm not taking it under some emergency youth authorization. Then what happened is then it was actually approved. The vaccine was actually approved for people above the age of 18. But that's the two-shot regimen. There was never any approval for a third shot. Then what happened is they went to emergency youth authorization for people above a certain age, people immunocompromised. That was approved. But right now, the, you know, the 50-year-olds among us and the 40-year-olds among us, technically, the booster, it, it would be approved for us because we're educators and therefore we're in the heavily exposed condition. But if you were a 40-something-year-old and you weren't in a job that exposes you to a large number of people, you're technically not eligible yet to get the booster shot. Now, this emergency youth authorization will make you av- make you authorized to get a booster shot. Mm-hmm. That's why it needs okay, to be so done. How long do we expect that authorization process to take? Uh, 
It might come across my phone in the next five minutes while we're talking on the show. I know I'm joking, but in the next couple of days, I don't exp- I, I actually don't think it's that controversial that uh, here's what we do know. Here's what the data suggests. The efficacy against preventing COVID goes down significantly over time from the mid 90s to someone that's just doubly vaccinated to somewhere in the mid 50s for someone six months later. Now, I didn't say hospitalization and death. There, the efficacy drop is actually quite small, which is why you could easily see some younger population saying, you know what? I'm protected against death. I'm protected against hospitalization until someone tells me that my viral load is that much lower and I can spread it a lot less. Maybe I'll wait to get the booster shot. I personally, I don't think that's a great strategy, but I could see lots of people doing that. Um, that that's the issue right now is that. And, and just to be yeah. very precise, the yeah. efficacy, that 50% efficacy you're talking about is measured by oh, that, that 90 to 50% is 50% efficacy in terms of protecting you from even with, with the two shot vaccine, people can still test positive. It's not actually really measuring kind of your ability to trans to other that people. is correct. It's your testing probab- testing positive probability, and which go. Let's be also clear. It doesn't mean you have a fifty percent chance of getting. I know we've said this a thousand times. Yeah. It means if your chance is one percent or two percent, it's now half of that number. So yeah. it that's the number we're talking about. So the testing the positivity six, six months test. out, even if you're double, uh, even if you're vaccinated, um, yep. you have enough. You can accumulate enough viral load of COVID to test positive at least for COVID. That is correct. And um, the booster that's out right now is Pfizer. Is there a Moderna that is in the pipeline at all? The Pfizer is Moderna. Moderna too. Moderna's, Moderna's been approved out. as well. Moderna's out, out as well. Okay, but not for not for eighteen and up. It's only not it's for received emergency authorization. It's, it's okay. an EUA for certain subpopulations. And what Pfizer's asking for is they're, they're just saying, look, everyone should be eligible for a booster. Now, of course, that's their vision, but everyone yeah. should be eligible for a booster shot at this point. Eric, you were Pfizer originally, and you've gotten your booster. Did you go out of your way to go get Moderna when you made that choice? So when I got the booster, um, I didn't have a choice. Moderna you had didn't. yet okay. to be approved. However, okay. if I knew the two facts that I knew now, I probably would just, because of timing, I probably just would have gotten it anyway. But the one data point, two data points we have. Number one, Moderna seems to be slightly more efficacious than the Pfizer. Just in general. Just in general. The the two-shot vaccine. Two-shot vaccine is slightly more efficacious and holds it a little bit more. Now, partially that's because it's a larger dose. The second thing that was interesting is I've said from the last six months, eight months, 10 months here on Wharton Moneyball, I want an obstacle course for COVID. I want it to have to get through my mask. I want it to have to get through Pfizer. I want it to have to get through Moderna. I'll take the MR. I'll take the Johnson and Johnson, which is the virus version. I think I actually believe that in the long run, they're going to find that this mixed version, which, by the way, is also going about to be approved, that it doesn't matter if you took Pfizer, you can get Moderna, Moderna, you can get Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, you could get Pfizer. I absolutely believe that's let me say that I'll say in a very precise way and maybe I'll be right. I don't think it'll be less efficacious and I think it could be more. Yeah. And I mean, from a kind of a statistical point of view, it's kind of like you're basically just applying the concept of ensemble learning to your own immune system, you know? So why not? Yeah. Why not is exactly right. 
So good, good, good. What about, what do we know? What have we learned about the Pfizer pill? This is something that's really kind of hit the newspapers in the last week. We didn't talk about, I don't think on the show last week, but they are going to be submitting this for approval as well. This feels like it may be a longer approval process. The results they're reporting are quite positive. Something like an 89% effective. That would be remarkable. It is absolutely remarkable. So you take this within like three days of onset of symptoms and it knocks down your symptoms with this ridiculously high efficacy. So it's really hopeful. What so, do we so know about again, that? that? That efficacy is kind of just whether or not symptoms are reduced. No, no, no. That could... 89% effective is hospitalization and death. Oh, okay. So it's, it's kind of like the oh. vaccine effectiveness. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's directly, I mean, it is comparable in that sense. Now, the question becomes, you know, again, are, are things multiplicative? Meaning if I have this protection from the uh, vaccine, and now I also have protection from the pill, can I actually just, you know, if I'm sitting here and I don't have COVID, can I say, all right, there's maybe it's 90, the vaccine's 90% effective. And then if the vaccine doesn't work and I actually get COVID, now I've got another 90% knockdown, which is 90% by the pill. So yeah, I mean, are you, or you could certainly argue the other way that whatever physiologically or genetically makes a person a breakthrough oh, case. that's true. For the vaccine, maybe that also makes the pill less effective. I have no idea. It really depends on what that pill does kind of relative to the vaccine. Great question. My understanding is they're totally different. Yeah. So the pill is what I thought actually the vaccine did, but it's not what the vaccine does. The pill prevents the disease from replicating. That's what it does. So COVID typically infects your cells and then makes it replicate. It's it can't do that second piece. The pill prevents replication. And so that's why you already have the disease in you because that's the symptomatic part, but it never gets serious enough for hospitalization or death because the virus just sits in you and can't replicate. So my understanding is, you're right, Shane, I'm not saying that answers your question about whether the the same Mm -hmm. thing that makes the vaccine less effective might make the pill less effective, but they're literally working on different parts of the process. One has to do with, I think, I think the vaccine has to do with the, the virus can't attach to your cells properly. The pill has to do with the replication. It's another reason I like the combination of the two. Right. Let's talk about where we are just in basic sets. Every now and then we've got to kind of take a reality check and find out what the numbers say. And I'm a little disappointed in where the numbers are because after a pretty steep decline over the last, you know, month plus, really almost two months, we've plateaued as a country, we've plateaued just above 70,000. Case of new cases a day, seven day average is just above 70,000. And it's been that way for a little while. It's kind of hit a shoulder. The steep decline has hit a shoulder, which is worrisome, obviously. If you go in and look region by region, it's kind of every region is problematic except for the South. The South continues to go down. And the other three regions that the New York Times divide the world into, Northeast, Midwest, and West, are going up. And in the West, it's especially bad in the Mountain West. And it's hard to look at those patterns. They even break it down county by county. It's hard to look at those patterns and not see climate factor. And I, I had the same comment in the spring. I'm not, of course, a lot of people do, but I just feel like it hasn't been pinned down as definitively as it should be. Doesn't cold, the onset of cold weather provide a pretty parsimonious explanation for the geographic trends that we're seeing around the country? Well, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think there's also, I mean, a, a, a parallel explanation is 
you know, to the extent that this is still kind of Delta variant sort of driven, what we're seeing in the U.S., the South has it has already run through the South and now is, you know, working its way through the rest of the nation. So, I mean, there's also just kind of the timing of waves of this virus. But I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think there must be also a, a, a obviously kind of a, a, a seasonality to this, even if the virus itself is maybe not as affected by temperature, et cetera, as say the flu is, but obviously our behavior is very seasonal. You know, I mean, now is the point at which, you know, outdoor dining is no longer as feasible in the Northeast and stuff like that. We're getting cold enough that I think a lot of the kind of people, you know, people whose behavior was to kind of be risk adverse and do things only outdoors are going to be forced more indoors. It's also holiday season. People are going to be gathering more with families, et cetera. You know, I mean, we saw this kind of peak last year during kind of over the holiday season. I think it's in part because for most of the U.S., we're kind of forced into more indoor activities. Well, that's why I was interested in Shane's response, because, you know, we have to uh, disentangle the effect of weather and temperature from now people are indoors, which is why I really think a combination of temperature data and if you'd like tracking data, which is, you know, uh, is it that people are now more indoors in other parts of the country? Maybe. Is it the actual temperature itself? Is it as Shane? Shane gave another explanation. The South got hammered. How many people left are there that still are going to get COVID yeah. from this Delta variant? So they've, they've, need, hit their, they've hit their own kind of version of herd immunity down there, perhaps. Perhaps. So we need all of that data together to understand and decompose if we want to attribute whatever trends we see to one rationale versus another. So I, I understand that we have to be careful um, I, it just feels to me, I mean, I, I, the weather thing for me is about being inside. So I didn't mean to suggest that it was weather directly, but weather indirectly. Having seen this in a, you know, a few different seasons, it sure does feel, mm-hmm. but I hear, I hear you that there's more factors going on. Hey, I, y'all, y'all might have dug this up because I, I noted it earlier, but I, digging around the county level data, I happened across a surprising fact. The case count, if you know the, if you've looked the answer up, don't answer, but where do you think I face a higher case count in central Texas at home or when I'm up here in center city, Philadelphia working? Now, what are you asking about? You asking about the, the positivity rate. So conditional on getting tested. What's which. Now, area I think this is new, new, a, new cases per hundred thousand people. I think it's what it is. I think it's a new case count per 100,000. And can we, before I give you my guess, uh, can I give? Can I ask you? Um, should we agree that both numbers are potentially biased because of the self-selection of who gets tested? Uh, sure, sure. And so, you, 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 are you, you think that my, no, my friends down in Texas are le- more reluctant yes. to go get tested? Yes, that's what I'm <laughs> suggesting. I'm select suggesting people Possible. in Texas may may be less likely to get tested, and therefore, uh, and also who gets tested. Um, where are they in the severity distribution? It's yeah, not yeah, obvious right. which way they would be. Okay. But I would guess okay. the reason you're asking this question. So right. now I have no idea, but you're asking this question because Center City Philadelphia is higher. As I, would guess, right. I, exactly. I, I would have guessed that anyway. But really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's a city. You know, but the, but, but no, I think of the Northeast as being kind of the, they they experienced the brunt when this thing hit, and they learned more than the rest of the country did, especially in the South. And Texas is famously like recalcitrant about all this stuff. And so I was quite surprised to find that it's it's comparable, but it's lower. Yeah, though, so, I mean, but let me I, give you let me give you the precise numbers. It's 12 in 
and 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 I think I, my my county, Hayes County, just west of Austin. Is this and daily four, or what's 12, 12 per hundred thousand per what? Twelve per hundred thousand new new case. I mean, I, I don't. I should know is that, that new cases per day. I'm just uh, no. Maybe it is the actual positivity rate. I'll I'll get that and I'll get that one okay. second. It's fourteen in Philadelphia, and I measured also San Francisco. I didn't measure. I looked at San Francisco because I taught out there in September, and you'd think it'd be lower, and it is lower. It's nine just to kind of calibrate. It's nine out there in San Francisco, but there are regions in the country where it's like 60, 61, 80. It's like a lot higher in some of the places that are trending up right now. Yeah. And I guess I, I, I guess I, I haven't looked at the county data anyway, but I mean, even back during the first wave, like, yeah, different regions of the U S got slammed at different times, but the rural versus urban, you know, even when, you know, New York was getting slammed early on, it wasn't, you know, Rochester, it wasn't the middle of, you know, you know, New York state that was getting slammed. It was New York city. I mean, I, I think the rural versus urban has got to be in my mind, at least as big of a factor as kind of what region of the U S you're in. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but I mean, anyway, regardless, I, I, I guess Philadelphia is the correct answer. I mean, my, my kind of joke, you know, before uh, I'll, I'll kind of say my joke again from before the show is it's probably a trick question because your transit in between the two places is probably your greatest exposure as <laughs> right. opposed to I'm, as opposed to where you are in either of the two places. That's that's probably right. I was always worried in San Francisco being on the Embarcadero just because it's the most that's where our building is, that's where our hotel is. And I figure it's like the most it's gotta be the most dangerous place in California because it's so touristy. So that number I'm giving you is new cases, the average new cases per day per one hundred thousand people. Okay. So it is kind of it is that new that 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 new new cases number the seven day average for the country is seventy thousand just above seventy thousand. That's the thing that has plateaued, and so this is just breaking it down on a per hundred thousand, so we can compare counties that have different populations. But and it's worth uh, pointing out that the death rate is still going down, even though the case rate is plateaued. Though that there's a lag that, there, right. so maybe the yeah, death we rate don't is know. Plateaued. That's right. When the strong prediction is going to be that the death rate. And for my taste, it's not going down fast enough, which is why I'm really bullish. When you said what caught my eye, I'm really bullish on this pill and therapeutics. My hope is that there's less resistance to pills because we take pills all the time when we're feeling sick. Oh, uh, well, there's a, there's a good prediction question for you, Eric. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see less pill resistance than we do shot resistance, vaccine resistance? What's yes, true is we've seen a lot. We've, people have been up for all kinds of remedies, like whack job remedies. They've been way open-minded where they've been so opposed to vaccines. Yeah, I think so. Also, the realization is, especially if you if you test positive, then, you know, if you even if you didn't believe that COVID was real, well, it's now real. It's now real for you. Yeah. And yes, I think there will be less pill resistance than there will be uh, vaccine resistance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think hope, it'll, yeah. it'll be psychologically digestible in a lot of and literally digestible. Yeah, <laughs> d- d- differently, because you can kind of like th- those of uh, those people that are sort of you know, resistant to getting the vaccine for whatever political or, or kind of psychological reason um, or because they fear for their health. I mean, this is something you don't, you, you could just wait till you get COVID to do it. You know, that's so, right. I mean, that, 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 right. that, 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 I think that's going to obviously, I think be a, a, a very different dynamic. I would, ex- I would, I would expect a lot more adoption unless it somehow gets politicized like most well, in this country. <laughs> Some, somehow can you imagine something get close yeah. so uh that's a sign of a, little, a, a nice little a nice little optimistic note maybe we can leave on that note since um 
we don't often have an optimistic note to leave on. And I like this idea that maybe there'll be less hesitancy about the pill and that could really change things. That has been Q1. That has been our conversation on COVID for the week. We still have three quarters ahead of us. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You guys can join us. We always appreciate when you do join us in a way. Reach out to us by Twitter or by email. Our Twitter handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We'd love to hear from you. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about sports analytics. It's a great way to jump into the conversation, raise questions, whatever you got. Our email is a mailbag of sorts. And again, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send. We get as much of it as we can on the show. So reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Guys, rolling into Q2 open topics here in Q2, Q3. I think we got to talk a little bit about football, both on the pro side and the college side. We're kind of mid-season point on NFL. We're rolling into kind of the busy time with college football season. We're, kind of, we're about to hit the home stretch. But, man, that NFL, it feels like this happens like maybe once a season where you look up the scores on a Sunday afternoon and you're like, what in the world is going on? Is this 2021 or is this like 2013 or I don't know? Like, how do you explain all the craziness that happens at one go? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely it was uh, I think it was probably uh, a bad week to be betting on football because it seemed like there was or well, I guess if you knew what you were doing, maybe not. I mean, there was a massive number of upsets and some incredibly. Sh- I mean, I felt like each game was one upping it the, the last one in terms of like, you know, kind of surprise. I mean, where do you even start? I mean, the Bills losing to the Jaguars. I think you have to start there. <laughs> I, I mean, OK, yeah. I, I would I would mind starting there. That's a good little, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean what? that was that was an absolute shock. Well, you know the part that surprises me, and I know Shane maybe has his Patriot hat somewhere else in his office. He's got his Red Sox hat on right now, but don't look too far away. The Patriots are five and four in the division, and now the Bills are five and three. Yeah. What's to stop the Patriots from winning that division? And I also see a stat well, here that's Bills actually... specifically. <laughs> well, maybe. But I mean, they, have two, one... they have two games left against the both games left against the Bills. And I, prior to this past oh. Sunday, I would have chalked those up as basically automatic losses. To, but I mean, if the Patriots don't lose those games, then yeah, they're in the driver's seat. Well, here's another thing also that I didn't realize. The Patriots are 4-0 on the road. They're 1-4 yeah, right. at home, which mm-hmm. is another interesting fact. Yeah. But Look, the Patriots took care of business against not a horrible Panthers team. Let's not no. pretend this Panthers team's no good. They went into Carolina and beat them 24 to 6. That's not that easy to do. And the Jaguars played a the Bills played a road game against maybe the second worst team in football. The Lions are the worst. And then and they didn't lose. And they lost. So I mean there's no reason to believe the Patriots cannot beat the Bills. I have no reason to believe that. And also, it's not even the Bills lost. The Bills lost nine to six. They scored six yeah, points. No. I mean, yeah. you can't you can't have watched or seen the scores on Sunday and come away believing that anybody can't beat somebody else. I mean, correct. It's demonstrated time and time again in one day that anybody can beat somebody else. I mean, that, I, I think I, the two teams that have separated themselves based on this last week. I understand it's just one week. 
I don't actually think the Cardinals can lose to anybody. I think the Cardinals can only lose to a very good team at this point. I think the Cardinals are a very well-rounded team. I would be very surprised to see the Cardinals. I'm not saying they're going to win the championship, but it's going to take a very good team to beat the Cardinals. And the second one is, how many great teams in a row do the Titans have to beat, even without Derrick Henry now, before they start getting some respect? I think they've beaten the Bills, the Chiefs, and the Rams in the last three or four weeks. I mean, come on. That's that's murderer's row. Bills, Chiefs, and Rams? I'll give them respect, but they lost the Jets like a month ago, too. So, I mean, they are a team that could, you know, I mean, if, if you put them in the category of can't lose to a good, t- a bad team, they definitely have. So, I mean, and I even put, I, I think there is a certain any given Sunday to the NFL that even the Cardinals, I think, could really like lay an egg. Um, but I agree that there has been some separation. I think it's kind of interesting because I kind of feel like, the two conferences are very different in terms of how that separation is kind of working out in the NFC. You've got a few elite teams that mostly have distanced themselves. You know, I mean, I, I would have counted the Cow- the Cowboys were one that got upset as well, but like, you know, the Cardinals, uh, Packers, et cetera, are kind of, Rams, like, you know, Rams Bucks. and, and then a lot of very bad teams. Whereas the ASC there's no, I mean, unless the, the Titans would probably be the strongest team now, but there aren't really that same kind of distancing where the top teams are really distanced themselves. It seems like there's kind of this giant cluster of teams where you don't have that many truly bad teams in the AFC, but you also don't have these kind of teams that one would normally consider elite, mostly because nobody's filled that kind of void that case. The team that also surprised me this last week, who would be in the playoffs in the NFC if the playoffs started today, is our favorite team, the Falcons. Yeah. The Falcons are four and four. They went into New Orleans, New Orleans, into New Orleans, and beat the Saints. They're the seventh seed right now. That's how many teams make it in the NFL playoffs. They're the seventh seed. They are now going to, you know, they have now a home game left against the Saints. They win that game. They got they have tiebreaker over the Saints. The Falcons. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty still have sure to play the, the Fal- Bucks twice, right? They still have to play the Bucks. No, they lost to the Bucks. The Bucks. Okay, abs- so- the Bucks thrashed the Falcons. Um, the first time the Bucks, well, it was a one score game until the, a guy on the Bucks literally took pick two, had two pick sixes within about two minutes. And that bl- broke open the game in the fourth quarter. So I wouldn't say the Bucks thrashed them. It was close for three quarters. Then the Bucks did, but they still have a game left against the Bucks at home. They still have a game against the Saints at home, the last game of the season. So uh, the Saints are, are far from out of it at four and four. You mean the Falcons? The Falcons. I'm short on the. I'm short. The, I'm going to short the Falcons. I'm. I got to jump in here with some power rankings numbers. Yeah. So yep. on that story in particular, we had the Falcons down at like 28 out of 32 teams at a strong negative 3.37. If you project them out over the season, right now we show the Falcons with 7.3 wins. So four and four now, only getting three and a third between now and the end of the season. We're pretty pretty pessimistic about those guys regarding the others the only caution i'd give you is it's mid-season and so let's not carry our convictions too far and whenever we start talking about separation if you look at power rankings you don't see as much separation as you might think and god i mean we've just we've just learned that anything can happen but let me just give you a sense of the separation we're talking about one eric especially i'm surprised you 
the, the only team really that separated itself in power rankings, at least according to Massey Peabody, is Tampa Bay. And it's been for a little while. You didn't mention them as one of your two, despite it being your, your team. Maybe you're skeptical. But I think it's just symptomatic of there being not any one dominant team. That the number that the, the, we have them at plus 7.3, a full two points above number two, which we make Arizona, by the way. We have Arizona all the way up mm-hmm. to number two. LA three. We have a surprising Seattle number four. I was shocked by that with Russell Wilson coming back, but these teams aren't really that distinct from one another. We're not talking about big spreads between those top, you know, eight teams throwing the KC's and Tennessee's and Buffalo's. You're not talking about a big spread one way or the other. Do you have KC in the top eight? We still, we can't quit KC. I mean, I, I, I'm having a hard time quitting them as well, but they continue to, be mediocre at best. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess they've won a couple in a row, but total talk about underwhelming wins. It's really hard to make. It's really hard to make sense of. But no, we 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 drop them, but we don't drop them. Yeah, we're not dropping them that much. Um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, look, Baltimore sitting up there, number five. They're whatever six and two or whatever record they mm-hmm. have, but they keep barely winning. And our, our buddy Joe Simmons just is beside himself after every game and how awful they've looked despite the wins. Well, and- we're going to find out a lot because, there, you know, if, if we think about, look, there's a tremendous number of potentially interesting games this week in the NFL. So let, let's just run through a few of them that are interesting. Let's start with this one. I, I think this game's interesting, but maybe not. I'm just going from top to bottom on ESPN's website. Atlanta at Dallas. Now, I think, yeah, yeah I'm with you. I'm with you. That's, I mean, a, that's, just, that's a potentially real, real interesting quickly, I mean, that Minnesota-Dallas score, especially midway through the game, was like so high-opening. It was 30 to nothing. You mean the Denver-Dallas? Denver-Dallas. Yeah. It was just, it just, I mean. Oh, no. I watched almost the entirety of that game. It was, uh, it was, Dallas was terrible. Let's keep going. New Orleans at Tennessee. Yeah. That's another really important game. You want to talk about another ridiculously important game. Cleveland at New England. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to put an extra level of importance to because all the three games you you mentioned are ones where we'll learn a lot of inter, like information based on the performance. We'll update our own kind of r- rankings a lot, but that Cleveland New England one is has a next level of importance just because of actual playoff tiebreakers. So like the Correct. outcome in that game is that well, let's, more let's, important. Let's let's stay with that for a second. Let's talk about these a little bit in more detail because I, I think that's the game of the weekend and Agreed. the one I'm most in, it's one of the most interesting games of the year. Cause we're yeah. really because of Cleveland's performance this past weekend, because Cleveland's been kind of middling around. They've not been the team that people thought they were going to be. And then they get through this, this, this drama, this soap opera that they've been living with. And they kind of felt like they were freed. And here come the Browns that we thought we were going to see. Now that's just a story. Yeah. But if that story is true, if that story continues, then they've got, some hope for what comes next and new england's just good enough to to test them i'd say so the line on this thing is is pats by one they're hosting the game pats by one the power rankings our power rankings have them pats by point and a half so we're right on top of the line there. yeah most ranking most rankings i've seen basically they're right at like you know 10th yeah. or 11th in the league like they're right yeah. beside each other so it, you know even without the playoff implications it should be a very kind of close match but which way yeah. do you bet this guy? So let's go ahead and put something on the table here. So New England minus one and a half hosting the Browns. What do you got? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take the Pats. I usually in these kind of close ones, I, t- I take the Pats just because I think there's an inherent coaching advantage 
that the Patriots have in terms of prep and coaching. And, uh, you know, so, so that's, that's what I, where I'll go with it. But I, I mean, it's, it is pretty close to a coin flip as far as I'm concerned. Eric. Yeah. So I'm going to go with the team I think is better independent of the coaching just for a moment. It's hard to do that. <laughs> I think Cleveland's just a better team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Cleveland has more talent than the Patriots. That doesn't mean I think necessarily they're going to win the game, but I, if I had to pick this game, which I would stay away from, I would pick Cle- I would pick <laughs> yeah. Cleveland. I would yeah. pick Cleveland over the Patriots. No, and I mean just, I can't argue against that. I just think they Cleveland are. has a better team overall than New England. So I, we're right on the line. So I don't have a model to lean on much. I'm gonna go with the Browns just because I'm kind of I kind of buy this story of non-stationarity that they've been sitting there kind of not hitting on all cylinders for half the season. Maybe they figured it out, and if they have figured it out, then the power rankings are gonna lag their actual performance and by the way i'm no belichick fan, well, so let's, well, let's well, go, let's go what Browns. if what if one of the reasons they've maybe what what if this like kind of change point that's caused them to sort of come up with yeah. this like cloud ends yeah. up being across the field from them on sunday yeah that could be that could, that could be inter- extra interesting <laughs> I, i'd sign so up much drama that. so much drama okay what uh, let's pick another game eric you want to pick one of these other two well what about baltimore miami is this interesting is this not now, well, the line there is seven and a half. Baltimore should take care of business. I'm skeptical. They just haven't done a lot of business. Taking I mean, yeah, I, I so mean, I'm, I'm certainly intrigued to see if Baltimore follows their usual thing, which is like being down 21 to nothing right. to Miami at halftime right. and then coming back and winning by a field goal. I mean, it's Baltimore is definitely trying to make things interesting in every game, certainly. But I, yeah, I mean, they should not, blow them they're out. Not screw, they're not screwing around in this game. They know that actually, let me just say, by the way, Miami's not a bad team and Miami doesn't rarely gets blown out in games because their defense isn't bad. And, but Baltimore is going to win this game. I think Baltimore is going to be all business in this game and they have to, I mean, they don't have to, but I mean, Steelers are only a game back of them. I think they want to cement themselves as well. Six and three versus seven and two is a big difference right now in the, in the uh, AFC. You know, if they go to six and three, the chargers, bills, Raiders, Steelers, it could be a lot of teams at six and three. They, they, they need to win this game. They, they're going to win this game. I like the Ravens. I don't know if they're going to cover or not, but I like yeah, the Ravens heavily yeah. in this game. I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not, I kind of agree with you on winning. I, I kind of agree with you on not covering. But I, I'm just looking at your Miami's not a bad team thing. And just to give you a sense of it, and this speaks to the compression that we've been talking about. We have Miami 24. So right there between like, you know, the 75th percentile or the 25th percentile of the of the league, but look at the gap. If you go from the middle 50% of the league from, from team nine, which we have as the Browns to team 24, which we have as Miami is only a three and a half point spread. That's so crazy. The, so that, the, I mean, that's within the range where if you flipped who was home field, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So Miami kind of qualifies in that sense, Eric, as you're as like not a bad team. And it's just, I mean, it's just a lot of compression right now. Yeah. Or another way to put it, a lot of uncertainty about how this Do we think, are. so what do we think is the cause of that compression? You could come up with lots of theories. Um, you know, maybe it's, you know, because of COVID, there isn't proper preparation. Maybe you could say maybe analytics has caused some compression because every, I, I don't know. What do you think? There seems to be much more compression now. Like has Massey Peabody ever had it? Some sense yeah, that's, the middle half of teams is within three or four points. That's the, that's the right question to ask. And I don't have that in front of me. Um, didn't think, think about it till just now. Let's be precise. These things 
tend to spread out over the course of the season. We get right. more clarity about teams and that differentiates. Teams and the more. schedule tends to, I mean, we're, you know, the other factor that always makes judging at the midpoint is that the schedules that teams have faced are still very unbalanced right now. They, it's not like yeah, they this is, end up perfectly balanced, but they end up a lot more balanced than they are right now. Shane, that's Shane. That's a really, really good point. The NFL plays <clears throat> relatively balanced schedule, especially compared to college, which is wildly unbalanced, but at the midpoint of the season, it is can be really out of balance. And yeah. so you've really got to consider that. It's one of the reasons simulations are so helpful in looking at what's going to happen because right now is maximal, maximum unbalanced schedule. And so we've, we're not seeing things very clear. Um, but to answer Eric's question, I mean, really, we don't know. It's hard not to put it on COVID. If there is a difference, and I think we probably, <clears throat> we probably think there's more of a difference than there actually is, but assuming there is some difference that it's a little more compressed this season than usual, it's hard not to put it on COVID that there's, you know, even last year, I mean, maybe it just didn't inform us as much as we think because it was such a weird year. And so those numbers are still in the model in some way. And so it's probably a lot of noise. I think our numbers, our historical numbers are probably noisier than usual, but I'm not sure how satisfying. Yeah, no. And I mean, you, 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 I mean, it, it, a, it, it obviously affected the off season and prep, you know, for this upcoming season, it's added a whole different type of injury, you know, that, to, to, that has affected obviously games, you know, already. I mean, you know, this, uh, that can't, I mean, do we, do we not think that green Bay would have separated itself a little bit further in the standings with Aaron Rodgers in there last Sunday? That's I mean, correct. That's right? correct. So, That's correct. That's so, correct. I mean, the, these, the, there are kind of ways in which COVID does obviously directly, I think, increase That's right. uncertainty. There are two Good. other games that interest me. One, because I'm shocked the line's so small. But, but how about Chiefs-Raiders? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that game, you know, look, yeah. if the Chiefs win that game at Raiders, then all of a sudden, you know, I don't care, you know, how you get to six and four. They will be six and four. Again, you talk about tie-breaking games, uh, Shane. If the Raiders win that game, they're six and three. The Chiefs are five and five. And they'll have a win over the Raiders. So they'll not only be two games up on the Ra- on the Chiefs, but they'll have a tiebreaker against the Chiefs. So this is an absolute massive game yeah. on Sunday night. Absolutely and I think, uh, massive. The, the, the Chiefs have already lost to the Chargers. I, I have to remember now. The Chiefs, I, I, the Chiefs lost to the Chargers 28-14. to 14. So, yeah, I mean, if the Chiefs lose this game, they're real – I mean, that – Oh, I'm that sorry. That was the Raiders. Makes, sorry, that, sorry. The Raiders lost yeah, twenty. Let me see the rate. Oh. Let me just see if the. Let me just see if the. Uh, Regardless, I think a, another Chiefs lo- like divisional losses, of course, are the worst losses you can have, and that's going to really. I, I I think if the Chiefs lose this weekend to the Raiders, then maybe I'm even kind of ready to quit. But I them. just want to say one thing. I could see why Massey I'm not ready. Peabody, I'm not ready. Yet. I could see why Massey Peabody still likes the Chiefs. Let me just say why here for a second. Here are the four teams that the Chiefs have lost to, all except for the Titans, all by fairly – they've lost to the Ravens. We agree they're a good team, right? They've lost to the Chargers. They're certainly not a bad team. They've lost to the Bills, and they've lost to the Titans. Those That's are the four good. teams they've lost to. Yeah. They beat yeah. the Browns. That's not a bad team. They beat the Eagles. Eh. Washington. Eh. Giants. <laughs> eh. But they, they beat the Packers. But no, I'm saying you can see why it's not time to abandon ship. It's not like they lost to the Jaguars, the Lions, the Giants, and the they've lost to the Ravens, the Chargers, the Bills, and the Titans. Okay, so I think we all agree. They have not, and those, by the way, are all AFC teams. They have not played like an elite AFC team, but if they played like a bottom-of-the-rung playoff AFC team, yeah, 
They have. Yeah. The question is whether whether Mahomes can get it can get it going again. Because yeah, I, I, so I, 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 I even think. I, I mean, I think Mahomes. I, I personally believe Mahomes will get it together in some sense. I mean, he will perform better than he has been, unless there is some latent injury we don't know about. Regression to the mean suggests as much. But, um, but I mean, I think the real question that is going to underlie their true success this season is, is their defense really as bad as it has? You know, their, if their defense is truly that bad, I mean, that's really what explains how they've been losing to bad, good teams and beating bad teams is that, only good teams can take advantage of how bad their good. defense okay. is. So let's, let's, let's do fair, fair enough. And let's pick this game just to be precise about it. And it's also fun because this is one of these great, this is what, there aren't that many great rivalries in the NFL. And I think this is one of the great rivalries. Chiefs, yeah. AFC I, West. So no um, it's minus two and a half, at least according to ESPN. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'll go first and I'm going to take, I'm going to take Vegas because as much as we still love KC, we don't love them enough to justify a two and a half point line on the road. So Massey Peabody would make it like a 0.8 line. So there's not a huge edge, but there's an edge there. So it's enough for me to go with the model and go with the, and go Just with to the give Raiders. our listeners a sense, the miscalibration of about a point one point seven or two points. Is that like 54, 46, 55, 45. So it's a slight edge, but it's not, I mean, it's not 50.5 to 49.5. Like no, no, no. This calibration could easily be three or 4%, right? Yeah. We, we used to say that we wanted to hold ourselves to like a two point. When we first started, we would only consider to pick if it was two points. And then we eventually started raising that a little bit and maybe two and a half points. And what you're saying is you got to get it up. You got to get it up above the VIG. You're going to get it up in there like right. 55% territory anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, w- I, 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 I'm not ready to quit the Chiefs as a playoff team, but I'm going to take the Raiders in this one just because they're at home and and because I think they're they're certainly playing generally better. Um, and and I'm going to go the opposite. Are. I'm I'm going to believe that eventually uh, Mahomes is actually going to play a good game, and I think it's going to be this Sunday night. So I like the Chiefs in this game. Guys, can I bring you... up one, Can I bring up one more coin? Absolute coin flip game. Vikings Chargers. Yeah. Who the heck knows with those two teams? Who's going to blow it at the end? Who knows? <laughs> well, the Chargers got it done against our Eagles last weekend. Yeah. And um, I'm increasingly a fan of that organization. And I'm a fan of their second year quarterback. I'm a fan oh, of the uniform. So, so many reasons to pull for those guys. I saw um, him his first ever game in Tampa Bay. And in that game, he's not better than Tom Brady. Don't, listeners, don't get on my case. He was better <laughs> than Tom Brady the day I saw the Chargers play the Buccaneers. That's all I'll say. He was better that day. So, fellas, uh, real quick before we leave the NFL, let's do a quick season. Let's do the futures. So, running a sim, I'm going to run a sim with Massey Peabody numbers. I'm going to run it on unabated. So, a quick pitch for unabated. Good website to drop in whatever knowledge you want, and it'll give you a good coherent system for extrapolating from that knowledge. Anyway, run run a futures sim at unabated using Massey Peabody. What five teams do I get with a greater than 10% chance of winning the Super Bowl? Give me the top five. So this is going to be Massey Peabody power rankings, schedule in front of them, tiebreakers, division, all that stuff. What are the top five teams? Five teams at 10% or higher for winning the Super Bowl. Tennessee. Um, Tennessee, Tampa Bay, um, Arizona. Uh, Rams have to be the Rams have to be Rams, there. but I, but, but I, I, it's, it's, you don't want to pick too many from the NFC, right? You got, we got, cause just cause of the, 
you know, like all the, all they play each other a lot um, in the playoffs. Uh, is this what's in our rundown, by the way, Kate? Should I not look at yeah, it? I'm going to see as a wild card just based on the fact that Massey Peace body still had him so high. Well, we were Eric, you got any guesses? I, I, I'm staring right at it, so I don't want to <laughs> I, 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 I guess, but I would have gotten four. I would not have gotten this fifth one right. No, All right, but I so, might have had I, had I thought about it, it's the Cowboys, but I uh, might have. I yeah. know it's yeah, it's the Cowboys. No, right? the, the Cowboys we have down at, at like seventh or so. So let me give you the numbers breakdown. For uh, Super Bowl winning probability, Bucks oh, it's the Ravens. At, yeah, it's the Ravens. Bucks oh, at fifteen. Man. Bucks at fifteen point four. Rams at thirteen point two. So a couple of NFC teams. That speaks to how weak the rest of the NFC is. Bills coming in as the top AFC at eleven point six. Cards at ten point three. So back to the NFC. Okay. And then a couple of AFC teams. Ravens. The Ravens are the ones that you should. Yeah. I forgot about the, Bills the part. And the the part that's so fascinating in comparing the the um, unabated simulation between Ravens and Cowboys is that I it's not certainty, but the Cowboys have almost a twice as much chance to win the division, but about forty percent less chance of winning the Super Bowl. So that yeah. shows you the a, the NFC it believes and Massey Peabody believes because that's the input to the sim. NFC sucks. Cowboys are going to win that division. Yeah, I mean the, the, the Ravens Cowboys... are in a tough division, but if the yeah. Ravens make the playoffs. They're going to do some damage. If the Cowboys make the playoffs, they're not doing damage. Yeah, right. That's it's a, a fascinating comparison between those two. Right, 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 right. All right, guys, before, before we leave football, we did talk a little bit about college football because we were talking last week just a couple of hours before the committee came out with their first rankings. I know, Eric, you must not have been too pleased with what they did with your Cincinnati Bearcats. No, no, not, not pleased at all. But I want to say I watched a lot of the Cincinnati game. I hate to say it. They stink. <laughs> they're just not a good team. I don't care if they go 20 and 0. They're not good. I oh, just, they're you're just, too hard on them. No, I mean, they're, they're fine. They're, I was just saying, though, I mean, they might beat Alabama because Alabama looks no good. But could you imagine if they're the four seed in this and they play Georgia? I mean, well, wow. I, I, I'm a little I bit mean, more optimistic about where we are on Cincinnati. I mean, we've had them as the fourth or fifth team in the country for a while. And even though there's a big drop off, from those top three to what comes next. I mean, we still have them at the top of the what comes next. Those guys in the Ags kind of at the top. I, I have no problem with that. By the way, if you mean the Ags, you mean Texas A&M? Yeah. 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 I mean, I wish they only had one loss. I think they have two, right? Because that's a team that if you look at what they've done, including, of course, obviously beating Alabama, um, that, I, that team could be the most deserved. If they run the table. They may end up being the most deserving two-loss team in the history of the college football playoff, and I don't think they'll make it. <laughs> yeah, they've got. A, they, they're not gonna. They'd have to get some help from someone taking care. Well, the, because of that second loss, do they really have two losses? I'm pretty sure they have two. Well, they they can't. If they can't get to the SEC title the game, they're not going to get it done. The other team that has kind of snuck up on us surprisingly in recent weeks is Wisconsin. And that they're they're in the hunt coming out of the West. And that's relevant because the Big Ten's not settled yet. And they're enough, especially if Wisconsin can start bowing up, there's enough strong teams in that conference to kind of Yeah. Um, they're six and th- they're six and three. I know, but if they could upset somebody in the if they could make it through and make it to the Big Ten title game, they could give an Ohio State or a Michigan, a decent match. And so, that oh, you complicate. don't mean they're going to make the playoffs? No, I'm just talking about complicating the picture for the Big Ten since there are so many strong teams. We thought Wisconsin wasn't one of them, and yet 
they're showing better and, strength. And so here is, they come. is this kind of uncharacteristic? Because I, I, to a more casual fan that has doesn't follow as closely, is this kind of a, a, a year where the Big Ten does seem kind of unusually strong? I mean, to have yeah, for sure. three or for four sure. teams basically in the top 10 from that uh, conference is pretty impressive. Oh, for sure. And, you know, Penn State's been back. Iowa was there for a little while. They fell mm-hmm. off. But, but Michigan State beat Michigan. They turned around and lost. But Michigan State has been considered yeah. serious. So we're going we're gonna to continue to learn about these teams, of course. We've got, we've got Penn State. And, and, of course, the ACC is done. There is no, a, no ACC Penn State, team. Michigan this week, right? Yeah. yeah. Penn State, Michigan is the big – is one. there's not much of a slate this weekend. I agree. Wake lost. Those guys are out. We've got Michigan at Penn State. We've got OU at Baylor down in the Big 12. And then we have Ags going into Oxford to play Ole Miss. The, you, your Aggies, Eric, are going to have to hold on because it's a two-and-a-half-point line. They'll have their hands full. And the committee listened we'll to me. Committee listened to me. They picked Oregon over uh, – they rated Oregon well, over uh, Ohio State. Thank you. We'll, we'll see if it holds. That it has will. been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3 now. Another open topics conversation. Cade Massey here hosting with my buddies, longtime collaborators, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Audie is out today. Audie will be back. Guys, we just talked a long quarter about college football. Just a little bit of college football and a lot of NFL but there's a lot of other sports bouncing around right now. It's been since the last show that the Braves clinched the title. Yeah. They, they knocked out the Astros and got the first title in 25 years or whatever it is. Any thoughts on the end of your baseball season and the reigning champions Atlanta Braves? I think the playoff season, because it's so long is very good at sorting out the good teams from the bad teams. But once you hit the playoff, I mean, sorry, the, the regular season is very good at sorting the teams out. Um, once you hit the playoffs, I think it really is just coin flips. I mean, congrats to the Braves. I'm not trying to take anything away from what they did. They were the ones that won it all, but I think it's just so unpredictable. I, one I of the think things, what, let, me, let me ask a question here, because one of the things that I took away from our conversation last time, I think, was it's not just the unpredictability of the sport, which is part of it, but it's also the non-stationarity of the baseball season yeah. so that those records and the seeds can be pretty misleading. And my sense is that if we had really, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not often looking at power rankings for baseball teams, but there ought to be such a thing. And if we looked at the power end of regular season power rankings for the Braves versus the Astros or the Braves versus the Dodgers, the, the Braves, the Astros and Dodgers would have been higher, but the discrepancy would have been a lot less than the re- one loss record. And yeah. I think that one loss record makes it seem more crazy and uncertain than than it was and i think there's non. i mean i I agree there's a lot of non-stationarity in a baseball season but i think even in a baseball in a playoff series there's a tremendous amount of non-stationarity because it's not unlike the other sort of sports where teams play multiple games each against each other the team changes dramatically every single game of the series because the starting you know the most one of the most important determinants of every game interesting who starts pitching Right. And you can't you, you can't do that multiple games in a row. So it's it'd sort be of like, like you know, the, if the NBA basketball team had to have a different like, yeah, 
Curry well, couldn't mean, well, play you know, every I mean, game. Well, well, what's the great historical quote? Like momentum's only as good as your next starter or something like that. I mean, I, I do think that the things can kind of change very dramatically in yeah. over the course of a playoff series in baseball. We saw it with the Red Sox. Well, you know, Shane, but honestly, but more props to the Braves. They get their number one pitcher knocked out in the first game yep. of the whole thing. And they worked through that. You would have thought yep. that would have been fatal. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, I think it is sort of that is the kind of randomness of it. Their hitting got hot at the exact right time, and 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 they carried out, carried a few close games, and uh, I thought they were very well managed. I mean, it was it was kind of a complete package. But predicting ahead of time, it would have been the Braves specifically that would have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have we it. have we ever looked at the predictive ability of let's instead of saying total wins for the season, right? We know like the fourth and fifth starters almost never really pitch that much in the playoffs. Have we ever looked at like the win loss record when the top three starters are pitching or let's imagine we also just looked at the Braves record against playoff teams and looked at all the teams record just again. I don't care how many times the Tampa Bay Rays beat the Baltimore Orioles. And that's what Mm -hmm. won on the division by seven games over the Yankees. Let's look at the actual games against the playoff teams. I assume this analysis has been done and that has to, it has to be worth something more than just looking over the entire 162 games. Right. I think so. I I think that that seems reasonable to me, especially since we're not, currently working with power rankings with baseball teams with power rankings in football, Eric, we have not found that it's particularly helpful to focus on performance against top teams. You get a lot of information and how you perform against an average team. If you, you know, if you include all the information from the game, like the scores and the, I mean the, you know, each player, whatever, but I love this. I love this idea. And I especially love this idea of running it for performance with your, with the pitchers that you'll be going with in, in the playoffs. And it reminds me a little bit of 538's basketball model because they have two rankings for teams. They have a, a ranking for regular season basketball, right? And they have a ranking for playoff basketball. And it's with the recognition that the rotations will be different in the playoffs. And so let's value the team differently for the playoff rotation. I just well, think there's, more, there's more power for that though. Just to again, point reminding that the, once a basketball team decides on their playoff rotation, they get to use them in every single game of the series. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about like what you're really talking about is like, you know, Oh, do the Braves have a particular advantage? Cause they happen to have the, a, a better starting three pitchers than, you know, the, the team they're playing against. I would say that, that there's probably not a lot of predictive gain there. A, because most baseball teams are both have good, you know, top three starting, you know, the baseball, by the time you get the playoffs, the teams that are playing against each other are going to be relatively evenly matched, even in things like their starting pitching. And I also think you only get to take advantage of that, like one or two games out of the, out of the entire series. Right. Yeah. The one right. thing I was looking at the um, MLB ESPN uh, produces what it calls the MLB standings grid. And I'm just looking right now at this, like the Braves record against all the teams. Let's first start with, they were seven games worse than the Dodgers and the Giants against the American League. So let's get rid of those. I'm, I'm trying to do a simplistic analysis. Yeah. They're trying to make the World Series. Forget winning it. Let's forget those seven games because they're not playing any of the American League. You'd want to throw teams. it in her league just because it's so unbalanced, I think, in any kind of analysis, actually. Right. So we get rid of those games. So now it's not a 15-game, 17-18 game gap between those teams, okay? It turns out the only teams, the Braves had a winning record against everybody except Colorado. Well, they weren't in the playoffs. 
they were two and four against the Dodgers. Okay. And they were three and three against the Giants. So who else made the playoffs in the NFC? It was the uh, uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Uh, the Brewers. These, these are still pretty small. These are pretty small. Yeah. They were three and three. Yeah. So basically, no, no, but it gets back. I'm just saying, if I look at their aggregate record against all the playoff teams, I agree. It's about 18 to 20 games. They were 500. The Braves yeah. were a 500 team against the best teams in the that's, NFC that's, that's, that's this not, year. That's not bad, right? I read that's that not pretty, bad. That's, that's not no. bad. No. <laughs> that gives them coin flips in the playoffs at the very least. By the way, I, I still want to know what, subset of the regular season provides the best prediction for world for playoff performance. Cause I'm going to guess you could do worse. I bet you do better with just taking after the all-star break than taking the full season. Well, I told you the one thing that yeah. I looked at at ESPN a couple of weeks ago was the Braves and the Astros were the seventh and eighth best teams in baseball in the last 60 games. I, I would have gone farther back, but that's the data they gave. It's not like they were hot the last yeah. 60 games okay. they were the seventh and eighth best team in baseball but i i think looking at their record team's record and performance against other playoff teams if you had told me the braves were 500 i would have gone huh shane jensen yes. coin flipping model 500 yeah, yeah, team right. against those teams all right well yeah. they can do it again why not so yeah. did y'all did y'all see this vin scully tweet about the hank aaron numbers i so did the, it's the braves fun. It's, you know, not exactly rigorous analytics, but good fun. They won 44 games before the break, 44 games after the break, and they won the World Series in the 44th week of the year, and this is all significant. And just to be clear, by the way, the All-Star break is usually at about game 90-something now. So just just a one – but Vince Scully's quote is true, but they were probably like 44 and 25 after the break. The All-Star yeah, break is not at the halfway point. But That's right. it does – yeah, every team would love to win 44 games after the break. That means they were a well over a 600 team after the All-Star break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Scully was making a point because Aaron died, of course, this year. I know. Aaron played 84, yeah. and that was his club. So just some good fun there. Guys, other sports, we are launching NCAA college basketball uh, tonight. We've got the big game in Madison Square Garden. We have Duke and Kentucky playing, and everybody's kicking off around, around the country. So we're off and running. We're a few months away from March Madness, of course, but it'll be fun. Last year was pretty COVID impaired. They made it all the way through, but um, this feels like a regular season about to happen. So let me just give you a, a quick note on this Kentucky Duke game. They both missed the tournament last year. These are two of the bluest of the blue right. programs. And they both, both lost. They both uh, missed the tournament. Duke's favored by a point, but there's just so much uncertainty at this point in the game. Um, there's a freshman. Duke has a freshman. That a lot of people think is going to be the best player in the country. He's on the short list of number one picks. Paolo Banquero. He is supposed to be amazing, 6'10", power forward, coming out of Seattle. This is also notably the game that Zion Williamson had his big debut in, the, the, the Duke-Kentucky first game of the year, freshman, supposed to be phenom, blew it out. This, this fella who's playing for Duke this year is supposed to be the same kind of player, big man, but can move like a guard and – Get on him early because this is going to be the new name. Same player as who did you say, Kate? Who is he? Zion like? Williamson. Zion now, Williamson. See, this is my but see, this is my question. If I uh, told same, you same was, as same as overstated, but he's got okay, no, no, no. But I understand that. But obviously, Zion's nowhere near six ten. But I would have been more impressed. This just shows you the analytics and the way the NBA goes. If you told me this guy's six ten, he's more like Kevin Durant, and I would have said, "Wow, 
You mean this guy can shoot like fifty yeah. percent from three and create like I, I have to I, look, this I love this... Zion. But if you had me if if you had me pick, can I have someone who's like Zion or like and I'm even forgetting that they've played more years. Like we know Durant right now is an all time great, but I'd rather have a six ten guy that can really handle the ball and shoot threes like Durant than I would rather have a big blumbering power forward guy who's athletic. But He's not the shooter. You need shooters in the NBA today. Well, we, I don't. I can't, I can't. I haven't seen this guy play yet, so I can't speak to it. But um, you, if you're saying you want a guy that looks like Durant, you're going to be waiting for a while. All you right, don't have I'm, a lot of I guys that height with that kind of shooting ability. I do think Bunker is supposed to be uh, good with the ball. He's the kind of guy who likes to think that he can play all the positions on the court, which is good fun. So it's going to be a good one to keep our eye on. Uh, looking at the odds, the championship odds across the country, Gonzaga, they made the finals last year. They lost to Baylor. They're coming out as the, the odds. Just the to be favorite. clear, by the way, just to remind everybody, they were undefeated, right, going into the final game? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. Is that they, right? They I were undefeated. that. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure they were undefeated. Yeah. Um, assuming I'm saying what I'm saying is right, it's not just that they made it to the finals. But, I mean, if you looked at a power ranking, the fact that they went undefeated has to be worth something even more than just they were a very good team last year. That's right. Now, I mean, basketball, people turn over so many players. Right. Yeah, I, I would really, need to know how many, you know, seniors. They lost versus, some important ones, but they've got, yeah, they've very got important some coming ones. back. But yeah. Gonzaga is sitting there at, at plus 650 to win things. My Texas Longhorns are in the next tier, which is one of the reasons I'm paying more attention to college basketball these days. We don't want to watch Texas football, but Michigan, Texas, and Kansas are all sitting there at, well, Kansas and Purdue, they're like plus 1,200, plus 1,300. So there's another tier around there. UCLA, Duke, they're like plus 1,500. A couple of moves, I noticed that teams that came in not so favored, much shorter odds now. Texas is one of those as is Villanova has shortened up. Purdue has really shortened up. Purdue opened at like 4,000 down to 1,300. A couple of teams have gone in the opposite direction. A couple of teams' odds have lengthened a little bit, not quite as highly thought of. Baylor is the most notable Well, we can continue to do our calculation, uh, Cade, right? How many teams do we have to go down until the odds get to about 50%? And I I think, you. I mean, obviously Gonzaga is about 12 or 13%, eight. You probably have to go down about seven or eight, six or seven teams. Yeah. I yeah. think I'm still taking the field. I, yeah. I think if you give me, you have, I'll give you Gonzaga, Michigan, Kentucky, Texas, UCLA, and Duke, and I'll take everybody else. Win well, the championship, you, you, especially given the way that tournament's structured. I mean, well, yeah, I'm, that's yeah, what I'm conditioning yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think you probably need to take a, put a few more. You probably need to slide Purdue up there to get to 50%. I'm going over in Purdue. I'll give you still those seven or eight. And I think <laughs> yeah. I'll still take the field. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take the field on that one, especially the NCAA. But we're off and running with that. Um, other sports, uh, Shane, as our resident Canadian, can mm-hmm. you, is, it, is there anything going on interesting? Oh, I yeah, no, that- yeah. And I mean, I, first of all, let's just caution. You know, I, I said a couple shows ago that you don't want to read too much into, I think, the NHL season until at least you're like 20 games in. You're around the, you know, the quarter mark. We're not there. We're like 12 or 13 games in. But I'm already excited anyway, despite my previous statement, because the top two teams in the West are Edmonton and Calgary. The battle, hey. of, the battle of Alberta, this dominant <laughs> force in the 1980s. Can we get a revival of the Battle of Alberta? And I, right. I want to bring it up now because it probably is not going to last. So we need to enjoy it while it does. But I think We're the Edmonton Oilers are actually a legitimately great team. They've got Connor McDavid, probably the best player yeah. uh, in hockey right now. 
Um, I don't think that Calgary's going to be able to hang with them the entire season, but if they do, that's a very is, is anybody heading outcome. is anybody in hockey heading towards like a historic like 110 point season or no they're just you know they're the best but they're nothing historically no, great Flor- about Florida actually the Panthers uh have opened up basically they've uh they've got 21 points in in 12 games they're 10 1 and 1 so they they are on all right well that would be pace. if they did that for the whole season that would get them right, somewhere right they they are not going to do that for the whole season but they there there are some teams that are on some historically good and historically bad kind of uh, trajectories right now Shane, I know that Toronto is coming to visit Philadelphia mm-hmm. tomorrow night. So how, how are those two teams shaping up so far? No, so the Maple Leafs actually are the, uh, behind the Panther. They're second to the Panthers in the Atlantic division. So they're actually, mm-hmm. they're looking pretty good. I mean, they're a distant second. They're not, they're like, you know, seven, five, and one, but uh, the Maple Leafs are looking great. And, and the Flyers are kind of middling right now, which is kind of where most people, I mean, they've got actually a pretty decent, you know, uh, you know, they've won six out of their 10 games played, but they're kind of in the middle of the metropolitan division. So they're, they're about where we think they should be. I mean, I would take the Maple Leafs if I was a betting man, but. Um, well, I consider yeah. them kind of a Wharton Moneyball team. We, we, we have kind of an informal roster of Wharton Moneyball teams, and they're teams that are more analytics forward. And uh, the Maple Leafs have been kind of the, other than your Calgary Flames, Shane, they've been kind of the adopted Moneyball team because mm-hmm. they've got a buddy of ours, Kyle Dubas, who runs the who runs the team and he's kind of a, a, a favorite of kind of a poster boy for analytics and, and hockey. They just need, plus now at this point, they're almost sympathetic and amazing. The big yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of like sympathetic. They're, I, I mean, I would argue they're kind of like what the Red Sox were yes, back in the early right. Theo Epstein era. You know, one of these kind of analytically forward teams, but like historically had had some of the worst luck ever. And, yeah. you know, I mean, well, I, I'm going to keep paying attention to the hockey now, because now that I see that there's three teams, Edmonton, Carolina and the Panthers, who if they keep on their record for all 80 games, will set the record. Now, I'm, I'm, I know they won't, but I'm just interested to, yeah. is it by game 30 they're off pace? By game 40 they're off pace? How long will it take until they're not on record pace? And now we have three teams that have a swing shot at it. That's what I'm also yeah. interested in. I'm not going to tell you which one is going to stay on record pace the longest, but we got three teams <laughs> on record pace, and so that's why I'm very interested. I'm back into hockey, Shane. I'm back. Well, I think, yeah. I think Edmonton alone is worth being in because of McDavid and you just pull for them to have a decent year and to be competitive. You don't want them to be like the, the, the Anaheim, the angels yeah, of, of soccer with the, all this, these, these generational talents, but nobody around them. So you don't ever see them. I mean, I, I, I being that it's specifically Edmonton, I do hope that that happens, but like, yeah, I, I, I agree with your point generally only because Edmonton is the rival of, of my home. Yeah. I know. And I know there's one, there's one last, I, I wouldn't thing. mind those guys wasting away. Hold but, on, Shane, know, does this mean you grew up pulling against Gretzky? Yeah. That's must've been a sad lot in life. No. That's yeah, funny. no, that's right. That's right. No, I, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, I, I've made up for it by 20 years of following the Red Sox yeah, and Patriots, true. but no, my, my early sports fandom was not, was not a pleasant. I was, just, yeah, I was just gonna my, mine was mine was but I was just gonna comment that the Minnesota Wild have an interesting stat they're eight and three which is good it's not uh, fantastic but they're only plus one I want to see how long they can go with a massively winning record and not a positive goal differential yeah there's a few like that actually right now um, all right guys good 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 words on NHL got us one more sport got two more sports with college basketball coming in but that has been Q3 We have an interview coming up. Corey Jez, director of athletics for the Austin FC Soccer Club in MLS, hometown team for one of the Wharton Moneyball co-hosts. Corey Jez coming up in Q4. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. 
Welcome back to Q4 of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the four of us, of the two of us, and Cade Massey and Adi Weiner here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 132, the podcast version if you would like. Um, Shane and I always talk about one of the greatest parts of our jobs as being hosts of Wharton Moneyball is that we get to talk to people that are actually implementing this stuff in practice. And today's Q4 segment is certainly no different. Uh, Joining us now is Corey Jez. Uh, Corey's had many roles within the field of sports science and analytics. He's currently the director of sports science and analytics for Austin FC of Major League Soccer, certainly an area we talk about a lot in the use of analytics and probably the other sport we talk about its use in a lot was prior to that he was the director of basketball analytics at the utah jazz so Corey, welcome to wharton moneyball thanks so much eric shane great to be here great to talk to you guys so we have so many places to start but let's start with one area that i know is of interest to you and actually the five years i spent with the eagles i probably spent more of my time helping them with the draft than any other area so can you talk to us, um, you know, you've done with two expansion drafts, one with one, the NBA, another MLS. Um, why don't you start with how you think about the application of analytics to drafting talent, given the massive uncertainty that's involved? Yeah, yeah. The draft is, and certainly in the NBA, it's, it's the linchpin of most front offices and decisions and, and because of contract structures and the things that you guys talk about a lot that you know, you're getting um, a chance to change your organization. I mean, Utah did it right before I joined Utah is when they drafted Donovan. I joined them like six or eight weeks afterwards, so I can't take any credit. But, I mean, you can see how someone who's still on a rookie deal, you know, players on rookie deals change teams, change franchises, and certainly their trajectories. And so, you know, I think I think in coming to soccer, you know, we, we have a, a collegiate draft in the MLS. It's a It has a different kind of place in the hierarchy of player acquisition, certainly. Um, but but no different in that lots of uncertainty as an expansion team this year we had well that's uh, going to be know, my question let me just just yeah. for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball just the way normal expansion draft works and you could tell me if it's true in soccer let's say in hockey which happened recently mm-hmm. yep. teams get to protect a certain number of players and then the rest of the players from all the teams are available for other for the expansion team to draft from yep. is that is it similar to the way it works in MLS very similar in MLS. Um, in that 11 or 12 players are protected and homegrowns are also automatically protected on top of, um, I, I don't know if this is true in hockey or other sports, cause we don't have them in subsequent years, but um, teams who were po- poached from, so to speak in the previous year are also totally off limits. So because you have expansion drafts happening subsequent years in the MLS, we, we ended up having, you know, um, 10 teams. So it was five picks. So 10 teams were taken from previously. So we had 10 teams or almost half the league unavailable. To us. We actually had a much plus all the same protections in place. So we actually had a much smaller pool of players to work with. So it was a, a unique proposition for us, um, Austin FC coming in this year. Actually kind of following up on that. Um, I mean, I think it, I, expansion drafts are kind of fascinating because I think every sport obviously has had them at various points. And I think there's a large amount of variation in sort of how well they work because it, it, it's, it's a difficult optimization that you want to obviously try and essentially protect 
you know, the structure of the current teams, but you want the incoming team to at least be competitive, you know, with, you know, starting out. How do you feel that MLS is kind of, how do you feel that this kind of expansion draft structure is doing? Because obviously hockey, you could kind of point to the Vegas Knights as maybe kind of being a successful kind of expansion draft and that that team was almost immediately almost more competitive <laughs> than people would have imagined. Right. Yeah, I, th- I do think the difference in in the MLS relative to NBA and NHL, at least my understanding of NHL is kind of, you know, we are still going to get our best players generally speaking from overseas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, international acquisition of players is how top end talent um, in major league soccer, because of where the league sits in the hierarchy of the, the world soccer pyramid compared to hockey or basketball, when those leagues sit at the very top of their respective pyramids. So we are not necessarily getting our three, four, five best players on the team. Maybe even for just, you just think about it from a salary perspective, not even making judgments about the players, but from a salary perspective, um, from that draft, from that that acquisition method, so it's different in that sense. But certainly, as well, you you you're faced with the same kind of trade offs of you know if you're a team on the protection end, I might have young talent <laughs> that um, you know I, I'm really bullish on, and how do I do that while obviously still needing to protect the players who are the current contributors to the team and all of those things. So you you end up with secondary markets and, and those types of things. We ended up out of the five players we drafted. Um, two of them didn't end up coming to the team. One was immediately traded and one was later, um, you know, we kind of forewent his rights uh, to, to another team as well. So you end up with that happening in soccer kind of with, because of where these players are on your roster. Um, but one of the players we took in the expansion draft, Jared Stroud from the New York Red Bulls, uh, we acquired him. You know, he had a number of starts. I think he played 35 or 40% of eligible minutes this year for the team, which is a, you know, a really big number in soccer. And, um, you know, really productive player and, and, and someone that, you know, really contributed to us on the field. So, you know, it, it, it's the dynamic is certainly different, but we went from we had that and we also had the college draft about a month later where we had the number one overall pick. Um, and I had the NBA draft a month prior to that. So I had three drafts in the span of about two months, all with totally different optimization problems, like you said, Shane. Well, let me ask you a, a question, Corey. So how do you what? How do you measure success? I mean, you could measure success in lots of ways. You know, people that actually, you know, see time on the field, people that make some sort of, I don't know, all pro status. We also measure things in analytics using plus minus. How do you think about, like, if you're, you know, if we're five years from now and you're measuring, let's even at the moment forget your NBA draft. Let's talk about soccer and you're working for, again, uh, Austin FC. What does success look like and how do you score yourself? Yeah, you know, from an organizational standpoint, obviously the, the the traditional things, you know, our stated publicly stated, you know, organizational goal was to make the playoffs in our first season, which we we fell short of that. But um, we also, you know, self inter- you know, self evaluation internally, a lot of underlying things. Soccer, like hockey, and like other sports with really sparse sports with sparse scoring. Uh, kind of configurations, um, you, you have to really dig into them. It's it's so different from basketball in that sense, where you just have so so many fewer bites of the apple. A really interesting um, anecdote this season is LAFC led the West in expected goal differential, right? So expected goals, everybody who's listening, to this is probably pretty familiar. And yep. you know the differential of, of for and against, they led the West and they missed the playoffs, um, which is just you know from a basketball perspective, is just shocking. To 
right? To, the team with the, the best net rating differential is going to miss the playoffs or something like that. So, and obviously there's more to it than, uh, than expected goals. And, and there's lots of underlying metrics and because that's only kind of generated when a shot is created and lots, lots of things you can do before shots are created. So, you know, I, I think for us, we're looking at underlying metrics and the stability of them. You know, if we're internally trying to measure success back to your original question um, and how well are we reflecting the things that we're trying to do? Um, I think soccer, at least, you know, basketball certainly has a, a different coaches have different game models. There's probably a little more homogeneity in style in basketball than there is in soccer. Um, I can't speak as well to hockey. I just don't follow it as much, but um, so, so soccer is putting metrics to the things that we're trying to do and we're asking players to do. And that also translates to recruitment because we want to put metrics to, you know, we want to fall back to do certain things, get up the field and make crosses versus pinch in and play in midfield, you know, build up. So um, how, how do we put metrics to those things in a, in a descriptive sense um, to kind of benchmark ourselves and, and track progress and, and all those things that don't show up necessarily in goals and shots. So this is Eric Brado, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. We're talking to Corey Jez. Corey is the director of sports science and analytics at, F- at Austin FC of Major League Soccer. So Corey, I just wanted to ask you one follow-up question. A lot of our listeners might be wondering, how does someone move from an NBA analytics job to a soccer analytics job. So let's start at the beginning. Let's think about all the different ways that basketball uses analytics. One could be the draft. One could be training. One could be trades. One could be, let's call it, on-court types of decisions. Let's, and by the way, I'm ignoring the business side, which of course there's dynamic pricing and all of that stuff. Um, how, are the ways in which, forget, I'm about to ask you the importance weights and how much time you spend on each, but let's ignore that for a second. Are essentially the buckets of ways analytics are used within the NBA and soccer pretty much the same? There's on-field, there's draft, there's training, there's injury prevention, there's, I don't know, uh, what are those buckets and are they the same? Sure, I think they are generally the same. I, I do think probably the weights and the times, you know, are different, you know, recruitment, um, being analogous to scouting in the NBA, you know, it's very different in that it's international. It's a lot of it's international driven and some of those things. So the, the work looks a little different in each of those buckets, but, but I do generally think they are now, you know, the one, the one, you know, certainly compared to the NFL that just because of the nature of the sport that doesn't pop up is you don't have kind of a, a surface area for on-field touch points, right? I mean, you substitutions are, are coaches are obviously, doing a lot of things in soccer, but explicitly like the NFL, where every 40 seconds they get to make another, you know, decision really, really tangibly, right? So, so that part's a little different from the nature of the game. Um, and a lot of that is pre-planned and pre-kind of coordinated with the coaching staff and those things and, the, you know, the chess match with, with your team. But I, I do think the buckets are, are relatively similar. And I think what the sports have in common, probably pretty common with hockey as well, is we're really focused on the discretization of the game, right? And that's so. Tell our the, listeners what you mean by that. What what is discretized in the game, and what and how do you use analytics to kind of make predictions or do optimization? Sure. And you know, both of them. Now, the possessions of basketball are much more condensed than they are in soccer. Soccer, you can have possession minute plus easy, and um, especially with soccer, you know, eleven v eleven as compared to five v five, but everyone moving around the pitch, um, a lot of network effects at play. Um, in a very basic way, we need stuff to count. 
like passes are the obvious place to start, but then all of the things, especially the metadata associated with all of those things, um, you know, it's a lot richer metadata set than it is probably, I would say, in basketball, the space is just much more condensed. So, you know, when you make a pass, what other, op- what was your opportunity cost? What other, what other options were available? Um, did you, how many defenders did you bypass and those types of things? How does that correlate with success, future, you know, down, down the chain in the possession, all those types of things. And ironically, Second Spectrum, the optical tracking provider for both the NBA and the MLS is probably the common thread here. That's what yeah. I was going to go ahead, Shane, please. Well, no, I mean, that's basically, I, I, I kind of want to ask the extent to which when you got, when you guys are kind of grading players and stuff like that, how much of it right now is done with kind of optical tracking and, and kind of video type data processing versus you could imagine the other opposite end of the spectrum is you could take kind of a pro football focus kind of point of view where you've just got a, a person watching every single player kind of continuously judging how well they're doing kind of in a more qualitative sense. So how much, how much of it is kind of a qualitative, almost kind of scouting type judge, uh, you know, evaluation versus kind of more, you know, quantitative video based evaluation. Sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, the way I, I think about it, at least from the statistical side, I mean, certainly basketball, soccer, video, video analysis and, and, Things that the, that we know the data doesn't pick up on, especially, um, are, are always going to be there. Always going to be important. I think, I think the best people in these roles, the people who are doing it really responsibly, are very clear about what it does and doesn't say, and the the, the questions we answer with kind of statistical evaluation. But um, you know, with the with the optical tracking data, I really think of it if you if you think of data in both of these sports. Um, you have a play-by-play or event level tracking data, which is essentially like you shine a light on the ball and you follow the ball around the pitch and who touches it and where do they touch it? When do they touch it? And what happens, right? Three to 4,000 data points in a soccer match from that. Um, But that's different, Corey, than the data that you could also imagine, which is if I pass the ball to Shane, where is Corey? And maybe because Eric Bradlow's such a great soccer player, he creates so much open space for Corey Jez that Corey's now open. So that's not in this data you're just talking about, but maybe in a different data set. Yes. So that, that, you know, in soccer event level in basketball, we call it play by play data. Yep. Uh, The optical tracking. So that's three to 4,000 again, the optical tracking is, eight to 9 million data points a game. If you think about frequency of 25 times a second, the X, Y, Z of every player in the ball in the field. Right. So, but the way I think it actually gets implemented and implemented well. So things like pitch control and, and some of the things you're alluding to there, Eric, acad- very academic, very high level. I mean, PhDs of, of all, phys- you know, a lot of physicists do working on this stuff and, and the Liverpools of the world certainly have people working on this and have had them working on it for a long time. And there's a place for that. And, and that's going to be kind of the core of, you know, understanding player valuation at a high level. When you back it, back it out, kind of one level of detail, though, the way I think it, it has a lot of really tangible impact is kind of augmentation of that event level data. So that event level data tells you the past, but the tracking data augments it, makes it a really rich data set to do a ton of stuff with. So knowing how many players did you bypass going up the field? Did you, were you in a place where everybody else was really well defended? So you had to recycle the ball or whatever the things might be contextually to kind of what your team is thinking about and how your group's going about it. That gives you a, a data set that, you know, any one data scientist could, could spend eons with before they even get to the 
the raw XY coordinate data certainly has its place as well. So let me ask you a question, which I'm not even sure I know. If I, I don't even know if I believe what I'm about to say, but I'll say it and then you'll see. I'll, it's, who cares what I believe? It's what you believe. You're the guest, not me. Um, because the data is potentially so rich, and I, and I think Shane and I agree with you, it's very rare that anybody believe anyone's going to use the raw data in its 8 million. And that's the whole thing about data science. We don't have to use the raw data. We can use summaries of the raw data. Would you agree that in some sense, the data has gotten so rich that in some sense, the mathematical models one needs to use is actually more simplified than it's ever been? It's not about who's got the best statistical model. It's about who knows to ask the right questions of the data and use that data for decision making? Or was what I'm saying wrong, that you need kind of fancier statistical models to handle this richer data? How, how do you think about it? Well, I, I generally agree with you. I mean, I, I do generally agree with you. I think there's probably... Which is good, because I'm not sure I agree with me. I just want to know your thoughts about what I'm saying. I, I, I think there's probably, like all things, it, it, it would depend on kind of how big the area under the curve of the diminishing returns of the complexity of the models, I think is, you know, and, and I think we could probably nitpick and argue about that for, for a long time. But also with like, organiz- like tie it back to organizational impact. And I think the reason I agree with you is that the you know, the, the models get over the end complex, but the organizational impact, the margin of that's probably going to shrink and shrink over time as well. And, you know, when you're the only person doing this job at your organization, um, you are burdened or blessed, depending on how you think about it with pragmatism and, and you just have to be. And so, you know, it's going to come back to what is, you know, what am I going to choose to work on today? That's going to have the most impact for the organization tomorrow. And while I would love to do a Nessus pitch control type of analysis, um, and there are really good ones out there, and um, you know, there are really good folks in the MLS churning out these kind of things. Um, when, when your club is one year old, um, you, you're not at that point of your kind of adoption curve yet. And just you know, thinking about infrastructure, and you know, a lot of what I'm doing right now is software engineering as much as anything. Well, else. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna get to that next. So. Um, it, you know, obviously you've, my guess is, well, I don't know. Let's start with the following. I guess, I don't know if this is a yes, no question, but when you were hired by Austin FC, are, were you like employee number one within the data science group? My guess is by your title, you might have been. And are you building things from scratch? And if you are building things from scratch, what advice can you give? Forget what you're going to use it for yet. What advice can you give our listeners here on Morton Moneyball about building a data science group from scratch? Sure. I mean, I think you go look at, um, and I forget exactly, but I think Alexandra Mandricki was hired before the general manager, before one of the first. That's exactly there. true. Yep. Right. And, and so I forget the exact order of operations there. And uh, even though we started playing before them, they, she predated, you know, her, she was brought onto the crack in a while before I was brought into uh, Austin. Yeah. Some we've had her, bit, we've had her as a guest on the show. Right. And some of that's a little bit of timing with my, my work in the NBA as well, but um, you know, building up from scratch is, is a great, um, I, I was the first person brought in on the data side, um, really to, to build out the vision for this organization, obviously being in Austin, a tech centric city, um, the, the type of people that our owners are in the businesses that were there, that they're in, this was always going to be a part of the organization. You know, I do think MLS is going through, I mean, you look at, uh, I know Sam Goldberg's been on the show as well. Like you look at the folks who, um, it's like, since I joined a year ago, I think five or six other teams have brought in folks around, you know, the director level for this type of work. So it's, it's certainly growing in the MLS big time, but I, I, I think the, the advice I would give is, um, you know, 
thinking about the infrastructure and thinking about the, you know, technology offers scalability in, in ways that just other parts of an organization can't, you know, you, you, you can't clone your scouts, right? But you can, you know, you can write a script that runs a model for one league that runs it for 50 leagues, right? Around the world. And so um, thinking about that first and quickly, you know, I joined um, about a month uh, before the expansion draft, just because of the nature of the timing of the previous NBA draft. And um, it was, how do we get something up to, instead of, instead of go do deep dives on these five players for the expansion drafts, deep dives, which certainly would have been a viable way to spend the time. It was, let's get a standardized set of metrics up and running and comparative to kind of the benchmark players that we want. So we can quickly look and see, you know, and that, what does that turn into? That's a database. That's a web app. That's visualization. That's percentiles. That's Z scores. That's things that are not necessarily pitch control models, but are super actionable things that you maybe can do within a month or two to have, you know, some impact on the decision-making process. And to, well, you've, to you've actually portended, yeah, you've portended my next question, which is what do those metrics look like in soccer? Like, you know, we all kind of know what the metrics, well, I don't know if we know, but like, you know, m- most of us old guys like me, uh, we came out of data science because of baseball and we know what mm-hmm. kind of the standard metrics are in baseball. We obviously know what the extended set of metrics are in baseball. Maybe we have some sense for basketball. Probably our listeners are in Wharton Moneyball, probably the sport that we spend the most time on, but I think they maybe have the less least amount of knowledge of, so what are advanced metrics? that you look at without giving away any maybe secret sauce that often FC is doing that others aren't. What do those metrics look like? Well, the, the really interesting dynamic here is, uh, again, whether you think it's a burden or a blessing, we don't have a box score like basketball does. You That's know, what I'm asking. Yep. The, the, the derivative of advanced metrics in, in the NBA is the box score. And it's, you know, PER, box plus minus, you know, weighted der- derivatives of the box score. You know, it's assist rate instead of assist per game, blah, blah, blah. We don't have that, right? And, and certainly the kind of the game summary sheet of, you know, assist, assist are a problem in basketball when you take 80 shots a game. They're obviously, you know, a much bigger problem when you take like nine shots a game So uh, in soccer. And so really what we're doing, uh, the reason I say I think it's a blessing is because it allows us to view the game a little bit more the way we want statistically, as opposed to in the paradigm of what people started counting 50 years ago, which is what the box score is. Uh, in basketball. And so, you know, if we're looking at, you know, for example, a a winger and and somebody who's going to be crossing the ball, we can use that event level and that optical tracking data to define crosses the way we want to define them, as opposed to just take, you know, a stock cross. So maybe we want it to come from a certain part of the field. Maybe we want it to be played to a certain part of the field. Um, Maybe we want, you know, certain, certain players of certain positions to make very specific types of passes. Well, with, the coordinate data and the optical tracking data, and you can kind of very quickly aggregate those things or cut those things up and say, well, now here are center backs who can do this specific thing that I care about. And you would never do that in a box score. You really can't even do that in NBA play-by-play data because it doesn't have all the passes in it. Um, And so now you're, you're kind of already starting at kind of a higher floor, so to speak, in terms of statistical understanding of the game. Um, because you're defining things the way you want, not not kind of square peg round hole with box score. And how much of that kind of that that sort of evaluation is kind of off the ball versus on the ball? Because I can imagine that, like you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of players in soccer that are not involved, you know, that are not on the ball at any moment in time. 
but probably are doing productive things like space creation or in the defending sense space, like eliminating space, like, you know, et cetera. So how much of that is kind of something that you guys are trying to use optics to quantify? It's, it's absolutely a part of it. And that's, again, I mean, that is where, you know, when you look at, if you, if you look at the size of the staffs in, in MLS, you know, there's not multiple PhDs at, mm-hmm. at each organization where you can really do that yourself. Um, and that's where, you know, partners like Second Spectrum are really helpful because they'll, they'll give you a, a feed of off-ball runs, for example. And now, and, and then a ton of metadata about those off-ball runs um, and, and other parts of it and other parts of it. So um, that's really, really helpful um, just to, just to have that from your, you know, your data provider, your, your partner um, and, and other parts of it too. And other off ball things like availability and passes and things, how many other players were available in front of the, the passer and things like that. So it's certainly a part of it, but we, it's treated almost like an all ball event from a data perspective because the partner has, you know, Second Spectrum has pushed that out for us and made it really, really usable. Again, going back to that XY coordinate granular data would be really hard to identify an off-ball run um, yourself. Could you give us, uh, without giving away any specifics, because we never asked our guests to do that, but could you give us a sense of a problem you're working on now? A specific problem, whether it's, you know, on the field evaluation, et cetera, just that would give us a sense of the, the sophistication and the style of problems you're working on. Sure. You know, I, th- I think um, to, to speak kind of generally about it, it's with, with th- this type of data that I've been talking about, we have a ton of information. How do we relate it to the framework of the way our, our coaching staff and our, you know, evaluators are, are thinking about? And I think where a lot of the kind of, um, you know, the value add from a statistical standpoint, we can represent these numbers in a lot of different ways. But how do we do it in a way that is not necessarily just because Second Spectrum or just because Opta or just because StatsBomb or whoever you're partnered with, just because that's how they think about XYZ um, action or variable or, or, or event. But how do I relate it to my staff in a way that, um, it is going to be, you know, speaking their language, meeting them where they live, kind of all these things you hear people talk about with analysis in general, which is really important for communicating with your stakeholders. Um, that's one of the big challenges because oftentimes it requires not taking things off the shelf and going down into granular, you know, information to essentially create your own metrics to say, well, when the... The standard cross is defined as this, but we think about crosses this, this, that, and the other way. And so we need to define that ourselves. And we need to do that in a scalable, sustainable way, which is where like databases and software and all of that comes into play, obviously, and having a production system so that everybody can be looking at the same number and you're not recreating things over and over again. So that's that's probably the biggest ongoing challenge, honestly. Yeah, so I'm just reading, I'm going to read something direct. This is you describing, describing yourself from your website. And I wanted to ask you one specific example of that. Um, I could ask you about the part about you're drinking wine with your wife and friends, but that, that'll be a different show, the wine show, not the analytic yeah. show. Um, but it says here, uh, this includes designing and developing an in-house analytics platform to support all key stakeholders, coaching, scouting, performance, and ownership. 
Are you suggesting to us, and this is great if it's true, that actually, because again, I can tell you in my five years of the Eagles, I'm pretty sure the amount of information Andy Reid got on analytics was from me and my team. I'm pretty sure scouts was when we met with them. Um, Ownership is different because Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman, in this case, were very statistically inclined. So I'm sure they asked for stuff all the time. But are you suggesting that at Austin FC, maybe because it's the Austin tech sector, that the coaches, the scouts, the owners, that they're all querying, not querying databases, but they're using your, uh, you know, platform in ways like, you know, you're building a platform and they're just asking questions of it all day long. You know, I'm a, I'm a really big believer in, um, I guess, self-service analytics, maybe, you know, in sustainability, certainly. And, and, um, you know, Framing things, that, you know, my job is to frame things responsibly and correctly based on the data. Um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, you don't expect, it's, we're not the MLB where coaches hit fungo and write SQL necessarily, right? But, um, but really to surface that to my users and to empower them and not to be a bottleneck. And for very pragmatic reasons too, like just from a resource allocation perspective, but also because, you know, I think if you get, if you get this stuff in front of people, then, you know, they can start thinking about things in this way. And, hey, we know that expected goals is more predictive of future success than goals. So we're going to surface that information in a way that, um, it, you know, it's present in the analysis and it's, you know, it shows up in pre-match reports, post-match reports and those types of things. So, you know, it's something that our, that our staff, um, both on the evaluation side and the coaching side, um, you know, we, we've got really, you know, really great forward-thinking folks and Josh Wolf and Claudio Ray. Sean Rubio, our head of personnel, and Dave Tenney, our, our head of high performance. And certainly performance is really integrated with soccer, maybe more than, than most sports. And, um, you know, so really what we want is a, is a scalable framework. So, you know, how many minutes a day they're on a certain internal platform, I, you know, uh, I would like to think they're, they're there maybe more than they are. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of what we, we base um, kind of our practice around. And, um, building a scalable way for, for people to interact with information because, you know, I think with, you know, you go look at a generic tech company um, that's maybe not a sports team. That's how they're running their decision-making processes at their organization, right? You have a weekly standup and you review KPIs and the KPIs are standardized and defined and they're in the dashboard and everybody has access to it and those types of things. That, and that's my background before sports. And so I kind of try to bring that a little bit, um, obviously the, the the KPIs are, are different and the visualizations are really unique and fun because they're sports and not bar charts. But um, yeah, they, you know, that, that's kind of, um, you know, my approach and my philosophy with analytics as opposed to just being, hey, I have a question. Let me answer the question statistically for you. Could you maybe in the last few minutes we have, could you talk about the work you're doing with your, I guess it's your undergrad alma mater, uh, Virginia Tech, and the work that you're doing? And maybe, as I think you've talked to our producer, Matt Datz, about in advance, maybe this is a model of how sports teams and universities and analytics is going to work going forward. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Virginia Tech. Yeah, yeah. I went to Virginia Tech undergrad and obviously a, a Power 5 conference and a Power 5 team and um, great, a lot of great um, technology um, on campus there, a lot of great resources from a, being a tech school. Um, you know, the one that's been kind of really publicly uh, publicized here in Austin, uh, the University of Texas just announced a partnership with Accenture, multi-million dollar partnership to start a sports business institute. I believe the name it is with Kurt Goldsberry, who a lot of the listeners will be familiar with from his work in the NBA. Um, and I think it's a great framework to think about collegiate athletics. And you, 
you know, these concepts I'm talking about in terms of scalability and, um, you know, leveraging resources and things like that, college campuses are a great place to kind of accomplish that, where you have a ton of shared resources in students. Um, you have sports, which I think is a great framework for understanding statistics because you have a field with rules. And so it's a little easier than things like the economy. Um, and um, you, you've got a lot of great talent on campus, people that want to kind of be a part of a common cause. And so, um, you know, we're working on something very similar um, as a partnership with the College of Business and the Athletic Department at Virginia Tech. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think over the next five years, you're going to see uh, Notre Dame just hired an associate athletic director. Of, I forget her exact title, but, you know, innovation, analytics, and those types of things. You're going to see associate ADs of analytics in, in Power Five conferences. And you're going to see more of them than not. Over, I, over the next five years, I'd say a majority of Power Five schools are going to have this. And I mean, in the NBA, certainly, we, we thought about a lot of things in terms of cost of a win, you know, total salary outlaid in the league divided by number of wins. Um, I, I've seen, I, I don't know, it's a little harder to outlay that number you know, salaries in, in college football and things, but, but those numbers are in the millions of dollars, right? Um, certainly in, in the college football and the high level college football levels. So when you talk about ROI, you know, things like EPA, which are probably, you know, haven't really penetrated college football yet. Certainly, you know, things that we're starting to take for granted, at least in, you know, people who run in our circles a little bit in terms of fourth down decision-making and field goal decision-making in the NFL are starting to penetrate college football. But if you, you know, read the bots that pop up on Saturday on your Twitter feed, they're, they're still punting a lot more than, than maybe they, they should otherwise be. And so the immediate microeconomic ROI of those things is going to be really high, much less the macroeconomic ROI and the ability to impact non-revenue generating sports, give them resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. And it's got a lot of tentacles and a lot of promise, I think. So I think it's something you're going to see a lot of in the next five to 10 years in um, collegiate athletics. Well, obviously, it allows me to do a little bit of pitch for our center at Wharton called WASABI, which is obviously the greatest acronym of all time, which is the <laughs> Wharton Sports Analytics Business Initiative, where we're partnering also, by the way, with Penn Athletics and obviously uh, the opportunity to do analytics. Well, Corey, uh, we've been talking to Corey Jez. Corey's the director of sports analytics, sports science and analytics at Austin FC of Major League Soccer. Uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us this week here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks so much, guys. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I've been doing this last interview with my co-host and friend, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Ida Weiner are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, thanks to our producer, the boss man, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Between now and next week, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your sports, and we will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.